previously on Popping Collars. Another plug for the 19th century. The Dickens Universe happens every year the first week of August on the UC Santa Cruz campus where 200 professors, grad students, high school teachers, elder hostel people, and the public who is interested come together and discuss a Dickens novel for an entire week and have tea and drinks and food in the cafeteria and parties. And um, it's actually a lot of fun. You would not believe that from the description I'm giving, um, (laughs) but it is awesome. Does it help that you're married to somebody from the 19th century? Welcome to Poppin' Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of faith, religion, meaning, popular culture. It's a very heavily trafficked intersection of all those things. My name is Betsy Gonzalez, and I serve in Alexandria as the chaplain at Episcopal High School. Uh, Joining me today are my co-hosts, Greg Knight. How are you, Greg? What's up, Betsy? I am the director of Children and Youth Ministries in Palm Beach, Florida, where we lost a little bit of the sun today, but not all of it. 80% eclipsed. All right. We've got some people who might beat you in the eclipse zone. Also, our co-host, Liz Easton. What was your eclipse percentage and what job do you do, Liz? <laughs> Betsy, um, I'm the canon to the ordinary of the Diocese of Nebraska, and we were in the path of totality. That's the greatest phrase. It yes, really is. Decade. It really is. Totality. And I um, was kind of like lazy on this whole thing and wasn't that into it. And then the day came and I got a little FOMO. And luckily I had a friend with um, welding masks. and Like I, we do. Like we do. And um, I just got to watch the moon eclipse the sun. Excellent. And we're going to welcome our, our guest with us today, uh, joining us from the West Coast, Stephen McHale. What was your eclipse percentage, and what 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 do you do out there on the West Coast? My name is Steve, the Reverend Stephen McHale. <laughs> um, I'm really into Quite my correct. title, and uh, I am the priest at Christ Episcopal Church in Alameda, California, where it was overcast this morning for the seventy-something percentage of sun covered. So we drove out to the uh, suburbs uh, where it was clear and sunny, and my seven-year-old and nine-year-old were fascinated for about two minutes. <laughs> and then I made them stand there with me for 30 more. Excellent. I feel like astronomy, all astronomy is fascinating for two minutes. And then it involves a lot of math at that point. <laughs> then, then the Uranus jokes start coming out. Uh, my friends, welcome to Pop and Collars episode 69. Today we are talking about the 1990s uh, and how... I was talking with Greg uh, the other week, and we were saying that uh, I feel like lately I've just been surrounded by 1990s nostalgia. Uh, Lots of anniversaries have been popping up over the past few years of the JonBenet Ramsey murder, uh, O.J. Simpson trial, Rodney King trial. There's a bunch of L.A. Riot movies getting ready to come out. Um, Straight Outta Compton movie came out. Uh, And I started really pulling all this together while I was watching the four-part HBO documentary, The Defiant Ones which is directed by Alan Hughes, also a 90s icon in his own right. 
with uh, the maker of Menace to Society and Dead Presidents with his brother, Albert. I just remember the opening of those movies, you know, a Hughes Brothers film, you know, (laughs) every time. Uh, But this documentary, it's about music producers, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre and their stories, their origin stories, apart from one another on two different coasts, and then their own careers and how they came together kind of looking at the decade as a whole really interesting because it was also contrasting with these a really strong moral imperative that was trying to run through the culture as well this is kind of a romantic time the 90s we didn't have cell phones the internet was around thank you al gore but growing right (laughs) it was the birth of the popularity of what would jesus do uh you know purity rings the purity tests i remember taking Mm -hmm. in college right Um, i believe uh, greg greg failed did he yeah. fail that? <laughs> well, it totally made me snicker. This was episode 69. And I was like, oh, that's uh-huh. um, but we also, we really wanted to save the world. And we were into wearing overalls and going to Earth Day and save it to bed. And, you know, it's it feels like a generation that or time period, a decade that's hard to put your finger on, you know. And, and I think we're starting to try to do that because a lot of the things playing out then are still happening now, maybe. But I know we're all different generationally. And we've lived through the 90s in different ways. So my first question for everyone is really, you know, what age were you in the span of the 90s? You know, how does your age really shape the meaning of this particular time period? I remember New Year's 1990 because I got off early from my job bagging groceries at the QFC and uh, went to a friend's house. And two of us had coffee together because uh, I was super sweetly naive and... Oh. Uh, so I remember that. Um, other touchstone moments. Smells Like Teen Spirit came out fall of my senior year in high school. Um, and it was the song played at all the dances. And it's it's terrible slow dance track. And then at my New Year's 2000 party, Chris Cornell was supposed to be there. And he never showed up. Aww. So uh, for me, in the 90s spanned the age of 7 to 17. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I, re- I really remember when Kurt Cobain died, but I was still really young. Like, I don't even think I was 10. And um, kind of grunge and how that affected our city and how people saw us. I remember being scared of Marilyn Manson. And not like in an appealing way, like in a legit scared way. Like, I don't understand what's happening. I don't know. I don't have any of those awesome 90s moments. I was still kind of a kid. Did you watch a lot of Power Rangers or anything? (laughs) (laughs) I do remember I went through a phase in middle school where I was like obsessed with the real world on MTV. Oh, my God. Yes. Like obsessed. I would watch marathons of those things. Oh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so I was so, so I was a teenager who apparently liked the same childish things that Liz did. <laughs> Graduated high school in 95, so this was the 90s were sort of in my wheelhouse. It it felt like it was a decade where um things felt new. They may not have been new, but they felt new. So like the whole grunge thing and I'm thinking specifically of music, I guess, but the whole grunge thing felt very different from like the 80s hair bands like even something like guns and roses felt really different from that and the same thing with the rap scene like the the stuff that was that was coming out in the 90s so like tupac and snoop dogg and stuff like that was kind of what i listened to the west coast stuff um was just so different from 
you know, anything that came out in the eighties that was more polished and more sort of disco based. Um, it felt like a, almost like a punk rock kind of movement that was going through where like new things were being discovered. Oh, mine would, mine would have all of that cheese ball stuff in it too. Yeah. I was 15 to 25. It was a lot of heavy religious growth and religious involvement for me and, and Episcopal church stuff and all of that. When I was in high school, you know, I couldn't get enough of camp. I couldn't get enough of my friends, but then I couldn't get enough of my Rolling Stone subscription, which I like now kind of like subscribing to what, you know, my spin magazine, my, you know, the, the magazine covers that would cover my wall. And I think my feeling of the 1980s, when I think about eighties movies and kind of how I look, I watch those and I'm like, the, the experiences of like these John Hughes kids seem so different and far away from me. Right. And then you age it forward into the nineties and suddenly you're able to peek into worlds that were never getting press. Um, so I remember like the first time I saw like boys in the hood mm-hmm. and, and it's the society I watched that in college and, and having, ex- you know, these, Cult, pop culture experiences with people of color and then going to college and having friends who are people of color, which I didn't really have the opportunity to do very much in high school, but the world just got bigger. And I think that the way pop culture was being delivered to us made the world get bigger. When, when I think of the decade, I like the thing that, I guess the thing that first comes to mind is are the LA riots in 92. I don't know why, but it occurs to me that there were so many things that happened in the nineties that weren't, that weren't programming that were actually TV events, but watch the Gulf war start on TV. Yeah, exactly. I remember being watching it on television, you know, to the bookend uh, of the decade with the Columbine shootings. Life events and tragedies were presented as television shows. Well, and so much of those events that you just described, Greg, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to, think of that world view versus right now. Like we don't have, because we all get our media in different ways now and we're all kind of fractured. um, We don't have those single like real time events, but we still have those. We had one today that we all shared. That's right. Yeah, sure. We did at the eclipse. That's a good example. And well, and I'm thinking of um, on a darker note, um, Charlottesville a couple of weeks ago, um, we didn't, we maybe weren't all gathered around televisions at the same time watching it, but we were all concerned and uh, thinking and sort of receiving information about that at the same time, just in different ways. But anyway, it just made me think, Greg, the, those major events that you described both had to do with race and that how that was uh, um, a cultural conversation that was happening sort of across the country at that time. And I think sort of thinking that we were making strides and thinking that things were changing or at least that the sort of sin of racism was being exposed in a big way, like through Rodney King, Um, you know, and now here we are a long time later and we have not gotten that far. I'm going to raise my hand and say at the time I was entirely oblivious of the racial element of the LA riots and the OJ Simpson trial, which is pretty hard to fathom now. Um, No, I think we just thought those were, Made for television. Wow. Another world. You know, we've we've spent a lot of time this year on this podcast even 
trying to figure out like, well, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the events of Charlottesville and stuff? And the answer is that it's never, it's not one thing. It's a culmination of a bunch of things that get you to this point. I don't know. I, I, I start to kind of piece those things together in the nineties when all of a sudden everything is, everything is on television and everything is kind of on the record. Uh, not to get too political, I guess, but <laughs> well, I'm just thinking the other thing that stands out to me with the nineties are when people in government tell you what's wrong with your taste in popular culture. Mm-hmm. So there were two things that I think of right off the top of my head, which is Tipper Gore advocating for um, parental advisory labels on CDs. That started in the eighties. Started in the eighties, but I remember it being predominantly in the night. Yeah. But I, I yeah, you're right. I remember uh, two live crew was like one of those first ones. Um, but you know, really just the way that it, yeah. just the way that it played out for like NWA's career the way that it played out for their career in that they never got any time on MTV, you know, all of that, they didn't have access to the same markets that other bands did um, because of their content. But I think about that. And I think about uh, Dan Quayle making a comment about Murphy Brown Mm. being a single mother and being a bad example for the youth of America. And it just, it just makes me, it makes me think that we're still, we're, we're still, we're still in this process where somebody creates something in popular culture and there's some kind of moral police officer that tells you why it's bad and why it's evil and why you're going to hell. Well, and even in the banning of things, you know, two live crew can't play in Florida or whatever, you know, the, in that became the publicity, right? Like that's what was, we have that element of the defiant ones that any publicity is going to be good publicity, whether it's bad or good, whether I'm talking out of my ass and saying this or that, it doesn't really matter. It's all going to help the business. It's all going to help the business, right? That in the 90s, because we saw what TV was doing, you know, we had the rash of, of, of school shootings, you know, small children who, who brought guns to school and, you know, Paducah, Kentucky and Arkansas and like all the, you know, all these little places after Columbine. And you, you, you start getting worried about kind of, is is the attention that we're giving to some of these things actually, per, you know, making them happen more often, or is this some sort of cultural byproduct of something else? But Greg, I agree with you that it isn't always being able to connect point A to point B to point C, and this is why we've ended up here. But that it ends up becoming an amalgam of a bunch of different things. One of the things that you know, this is going to make me sound like a crazy leftist, but I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> that um, that I thought about in the Defiant ones was about all of this art, you know, the creation of art and popular culture in a corporate context. And like Noam Chomsky would say, there's no such thing as a liberal media because media is all owned by big corporations. You know, it's at its essence a capitalist system. Um, and I think that the defiant ones sort of made me think of that too. Now, Dr. Dre, like these are super creative genius people, but the backdrop of all of this were, um, rich people trying to make more money. And that when you start then putting that against this sort of cultural policing, it gets really weird to me. Liz, I think you make an interesting point and something related that I'm thinking about was for the Clinton years, I think we thought we could have it all that um, we had relative peace, 
well, not relative peace. I mean, it was a peaceful, relatively, you know, quite a peaceful decade, minus the Gulf War. Um, but we all got very prosperous, or not we all, but, you know, the country got very prosperous. And I, it's almost like we were coasting or let our guard down or papered over racial and cultural divisions in the country while, while we were concerned about starting to build the internet and getting rich. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something that like Tupac or NWA or, you know, any number of people that at least in this musical scene were able to expose a little bit is like, who, who is we here when we're talking about prosperity and we're talking about, you know, rising incomes or whatever, because there was, you know, a huge socioeconomic disparity between people of color and white people at that time. And the internet has not made that any better in the last couple of decades. Yeah. The fact that we're all talking about these issues now and that the things, the things that we, you know, the black lives matter movement and, and the things that have, have grown out of more recent events, you, you now look back at that NWA time and like from that documentary, it's like, see, we told you so. We told you this was happening, but you weren't paying attention, you know, but the span and time of like 25 years to be like, we told you so. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's how slow we're moving. That's how I'm not surprised about where we are in Charlottesville that, you know, that we, we seem to think that we're moving much faster than we actually are. Cause the story of race that we, we loved, you know, from this time was the, you know, breakdown of apartheid in South Africa. We were much more easily able to talk about that than we right. were to talk about our own racial problems in the 1990s and to celebrate the election of Nelson Mandela and yeah, you're all dancing in the streets. And, and right, because you could point at another country and be like, ooh, they're racist. Yeah, totally racist. Mm-hmm. Look how yeah. racist that country is. The fact that they also, you know, a little less press on the, you know, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was mm-hmm. amazing and did an amazing amount of work that God only knows if we as a country had done that. Were you guys MTV kids? Did you yes. look to MTV for what was cool? In the 80s, not in the 90s. Oh, really? Yeah. I still like the MTV. Because it was before, you know, um, you know, Liz, you know, Carson Daly, right? The, yeah. What was what was that show he had that was so popular? Total in the Request Live. Yeah. yeah, Total Request Live. So that in between, right? So I, I was a big... Um, you know, I loved Kurt Loder, loved Kurt Loder. Like I could like music news from Kurt Loder, the yeah. absolute, the voice of our generation. He's our oh my God. Right? <laughs> and, and so, and, and, and Tabitha Sorensen and the, just those folks in the real world and all of that. And I am the nineties was my transition from hiding, watching MTV because my parents didn't want me to watch it. Mm-hmm. To be able to watch it in the open. And you graduated um, now to having a poster of Octum Baby behind you. I do. How far right you come? 1991, 92 friends, right here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just thinking, like, uh, you know, we were talking, we were talking about how how our communities and our culture can be siloed. Then we had this one channel that was sort of this purveyor of cool, but like it didn't feel like everything was connected. You know, even though this one channel had yo MTV raps, you know, at the same time that like, you know, 30 minutes after 30 minutes after they played a meat puppets video, you could watch yo MTV raps, you know, 
Stephen keeps using this idea of naive um, or this word naive uh, to describe his experience with the nineties. And I just wonder if um, I wonder if it was a sincere decade. I'm going to answer your question. Yes. Because <laughs> the other side of the nineties music I listened to going to the summer camps and going to a liberal arts college was like, we were so into the indigo girls. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to um, like twangy bands that would come to play and Jerry Garcia died and we were just so sad and um, and uh, you know we all attempted to be vegetarian and failed uh, I, I can keep going so like I hear all these TV references you're making but I was so self-righteously I don't have a television like um, <laughs> I was uh, I was the irritating summer camp guy <laughs> with the permanent Tiva tan, and he's just yes, yes. Actually, it's Birkenstocks, not Tiva. Birkenstocks. Sorry, yeah. That's perfect because I've I I feel like, and this may be a and this may be a case of my age, you know, because we've talked about how, and I think we're gonna, I think Ricardo is really interested in this conversation about <laughs> how age affects the way that you look at pop culture, but um. But I just feel like there's, I feel like the internet age or the post-internet age or whatever it is that we're in is, you know, is cautious. It's a very cautious time. How am I being scammed or what's the, what's the, what's the hook? How, how am I being sold on these products um, is kind of my first thought when it comes to pop culture. And, uh, and it doesn't occur to me that Taylor Swift may actually believe what she's singing. In the same way that Kurt Cobain <laughs> believed what he was right. singing. Well, and I think too, coming off the eighties, there's this yearning for authenticity that we were that that I think the nineties was hunting for, and whether it's in a well-worn flannel or you know it's a song that you know everything now is just so polished and so auto-tuned and so whatever to actually have voices break on an album and stuff like that 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 was just not it just doesn't exist now. In, in the same way that it did then. I think, I think we were looking for something authentic and whether it was trying to be vegan and, and doing all of that, or, or I know more about saving the, you know, bearded porpoise of, you know, Madagascar than you do, then, you know, I think we all were looking for that. Well, I, I guess my hook with that is, you know, it makes me think about church. <laughs> in, this way that, in this way that there's a way of doing church very sincerely and very authentically. And then uh, your numbers go down and you start to scramble and you feel like, oh, we need to put our best foot forward. We need our most polished product that we can possibly get. And that's what's going to bring people to us. And I wonder if it feels false. I but feel I like this. Is- I only work in one church. Liz, yeah. you see a lot of churches. What I do you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I really think that sincerity is going to win the day here for the Episcopal Church, if if anything wins the day. I think that this is a moment where people's BS detectors are just on fire, like they get it, where we can't, we have to be really honest about what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus and what it doesn't mean. And um, I think that the churches that are growing and the preachers who are great and all of that are are the the ones who are who are really sincere, sincere about their faith and sincere about their own 
brokenness. You know, it's funny you mention that, Liz, because I have been talking to the vestry at my church about um, membership versus discipleship. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, does, uh, membership is a very institutional understanding of the church, and we have failed at that. We, uh, along with every other denomination, I yep. think, um, or if we have, it's it's dying a pretty certain death. And that's cultural. I mean, broadly, that's cultural. We're not members of things anymore. That's right. Right. We are suspicious of institutions. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I don't have a good model for discipleship. I feel like the language from the 90s I might use is like the 80-20 rule, like 20% are disciples. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks are coming to church to be vaguely be part of something larger. Um, and how to increase that discipleship percentage, I am struggling with. Really one of the first times I understood in my own faith life, like, oh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. is like doing these things, like praying every day, reading the Bible every day, serving the poor, giving more and more of my money away. Like that type of thing was really like, huh, how did I get through a seminary and through a lifetime as an Episcopalian and not get that stuff nailed? But I didn't. That's the thing. Like it, it's the simplicity of the message, the authenticity, the authenticity of the message. Like you just have to buy in. Yeah. And I think it's hard to buy in. Uh-huh. Well, and I think too, you know, we make fun now of, you know, the, you know, what would Jesus do? You know, nineties birthed bracelet movement out of like, a look, I looked it up like a Michigan youth group or something um, as being kind of cheesy footprints in the sand kind of thing. But it links so much to what the conversation is now. It's not what would Jesus judge? What would mm-hmm. Jesus outward? You know, it's what would Jesus do? What's the action? And the fact that in the face now of such moral imperatives of human justice and the need for courage of action and heart, what would Jesus do standing and- there? And ans- being able to answer that question requires having a relationship with Jesus that I think is found in prayer and reading the Bible and giving your money away and serving the poor. <laughs> I'm not saying, I'm totally not saying I figured this out at all, but I just I think I don't know, it sounds like you're saying you figured it out. No. I'm, I'm not good at it. I'm not consistently good at it, but I'm just saying that like if the Episcopal Church is going to make it, like let, why, let's start there. time in the show where we do our staff picks like the wall at the 1990s blockbuster that was alive and thriving at the time right we can mm-hmm. sleep overnights in the 90s going to the blockbuster and making some choices but um i'm gonna do the rare feat of hosting and offering a staff pick today and right. there is a book that that kept coming up as I was kind of narrowing on the summer, like I found it on somebody's bookcase and wasn't this the thing somebody had just recommended to me. And so we go down and back to the, or actually up and back to the Adirondacks in the summer. And we were driving this year. So I'm like, all right, 
strong audiobook contender, what's it going to be? And I chose Christopher Moore's Lamb, which is also known as the um, Gospel According to Biff, Jesus's childhood pal, and was so great in great actual 90s fashion. The audiobook person was Fisher Stevens, who did the audiobook. Look him up on IMDb now and you'll be like, oh yeah, that guy. But it tells the story of Christ through his friend Biff, who who gets minor mentions in the Gospels, according to according to Biff. But he's been resurrected to come and write the Gospel of Jesus's childhood. So the missing time blocks from right before Jesus gets lost in Jerusalem through his journeys to uh, go out and discover what it means to be the Messiah and his learnings that happen between the age of 13 and the age of 30 when he comes back and begins his ministry. And it's an interesting take on the historical Jesus route to, to do this. And I loved the interweaving of different faith traditions of Buddhism and, you know, Shintoism and, uh, the makeup of Jesus in the way that we can draw, not that all traditions are the same and it, we flatten them in that kind of way, but we do have these human narratives speaking to that go across culture and across tradition. In fact, a great introduction to, um, I think, Christology, um, the theology of the nature of Jesus. I would never- I'm a sucker for mom jokes and it is filled with them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been given a couple of copies of this book, like at different times, and um, it's always recommended to me. I've just never read it. The way Christopher Moore researched this book, his extensive travels in Jerusalem and in Israel and in the area that he wanted to talk about to be able to do it all historical justice. I love that. And I love that he is knowledgeable of the ancient world. But there's my pick. Cool. Uh, well, that was episode uh, 69 of Poppin' Collars, Snicker, Snicker. Ah. Um, we want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find Poppin' Collars wherever you get your podcast needs met. Wouldn't they have already found it if they're listening to that statement? They would, but maybe some friends sent this to them. Maybe they way. found it on our website, poppingcollarspodcast.com. And they or maybe, maybe they found it on Stitcher or SoundCloud or iTunes. Or they maybe they found it on the Episcopal Cafe. I, you know what? So they found I love it. Episcopal Cafe. <laughs> Stephen, you know, I think that you will too for all your Episcopal Church news needs and we love to feature us every time yeah yeah Yeah, but you know i mean hopefully they would have already figured it out by now i think you're right so (laughs) but uh i just gotta say thank you all um you know on this beautiful day of an eclipse of the sun you all are the best so thank you greg thank you liz thank you steven for joining us for pop and colors betsy would you take us out with a rendition of total eclipse of the heart Turn around. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, those colors popped. Pop, pop. Pop, pop. <laughs>